0: Hello, I'm Anthony Sanna.
1: I'm Dr. Michael Smith.
0: And this is Fusion Health Radio, Episode 6, Why Dieting Never Works.
1: Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health.
0: Hello and welcome to Fusion House Radio, episode six. Uh, Dr. Michael Smith and I uh, are talking today about why dieting never works. If this is the first time that you've tuned into our podcast, uh, we'll give you a bit of a refresher of things that we've talked about in the past and why we're here. So uh, I'll ask you, Michael, what can you say about uh, what we talked about last time? The last episode was the primal paradigm. Yeah, so in that episode,
1: we talked about the five fundamental needs of a primitive person or a primate and how that relates to your opportunity to take care of your health uh, in a way that's, or in a few ways, it may seem a little bit unusual because it's really about um, just recognizing how much of the time we spend in our heads uh, with respect to trying to solve our problems and deal with health issues or, you know, spending time surfing Dr. Google to try and figure out what the next new fad may help us. Uh, there's stuff that's been helping out for the last three million years and they're all really simple and they matter.
0: So let's uh, take that to today. Today we're going to be talking about why dieting never works, but before we get into that, can you give folks a a recap of who you are and and what you do? Okay, so
1: I practice integrative medicine. Uh, Specifically, I combine the leading-edge sciences of functional medicine and nutritional medicine with the vast experience uh, of traditional Chinese medicine, uh, which includes acupuncture and uh, herbs and massage and kind of counseling and a lot of other stuff. Chinese medicine has got quite the potent buffet
0: of ways to support people. Yeah, I'll second that. (laughs) From my own experience, uh, I'm Anthony Santa and I'm working with Michael on this podcast uh, because I am a health seeker and I'm a big fan of uh, the version of health as I've learned to enjoy it uh, thanks to what I've learned working with Michael over the past couple of years and a bit of a podcast nerd and decided to help him put this together. So let's get to today's subject, why dieting never works. Why does dieting never work? What do you mean by that? The word diet,
1: as Garfield put it in you know explicit terms, is die with a T attached to it. <laughs> <laughs> so for all the overweight cat listening, cats listening to the podcast, you're, you're going to be very happy. <laughs> so we have a modern trend that got started you know um, in its infancy in the kind of the 1920s, but it really started to gain momentum in the 70s and 80s when uh, in the developed world's uh, countries in the world, uh, obesity started to become you know a pretty significant thing. And uh, the number of fad diets, which basically means you're going to restrict calories and try and burn extra calories. The number of different fad diets is, you know, almost uncountable in the sense of labeling and tricks and, you know, just eat salad, just drink water, you know, you can't have fat in your diet, you can't, or, you know, there's just a lot of different ways people have uh, come up with, you know, and I'm sure they made sense on some level medically uh, that would support people in doing that. The um, actual, you know, down here on the ground statistics are almost everyone who does a calorie restriction diet with excessive exercise uh, will inevitably lose weight because you're basically, you know, dying in two different directions at the same time. Uh, But when they start going back to the regular lifestyle, less extreme exercise, less extreme uh, calorie restriction, they gain the weight that they had back plus about five to ten pounds.
0: So the, the whole idea of a regular diet Something that I would pick up out of a book um, is something that'll actually actually help me gain weight. Is what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> uh, disappointingly, yes, <laughs> and surprisingly so. Uh, yeah, it's actually quite.
1: Uh, as anyone who's listening who's had this experience uh, can confirm, and as anyone else can imagine, um, going through all of that effort, you know, of basically starving all day every day for months while trying to exercise your pants off, um, if that's an expression. <laughs> You know, (laughs) well, the idea is your pants would fall off, right? Anyway, you know, to go through months and months of that, you know, relative personal hell and then going back to normal, whatever your normal is, and to end up, say, back at 250 pounds plus five pounds when you, you know, just spent months trying to stay under 200, uh, would be no crushing for a lot of people. And it just keeps happening, you know, We've you did, did that every two years for ten years, now you're, you know, 300 pounds and your metabolism's even in more trouble.
0: Well, from my own experience around dieting, I've never had a diet to lose weight uh, so much as I've had a diet to uh, just maintain my health. Um, and the different things that I've done in the past, uh, I've always noticed how the challenge for me is, okay, here's this um, set of rules that I'm supposed to follow, and when I said dieting in a book, I think of things like the Hollywood diet, or South Beach diet, or Aitken's diet, or I can only think of two or three really horrible examples from what I've heard. I never subscribed to anything like that. For me, it was always um, uh, what can I eat uh, versus what I can't eat, which really meant what can I properly digest that doesn't make me feel like crap uh, versus junk food that makes me feel like crap. Ultimately, the thing that always hung me up around dieting was my own emotional well-being around that because it was so restrictive it was like ah i'm going nuts i'm in this box i can't stand it in here i'm gonna step out and eat pizza junk whatever it is so i would imagine that there's something to the idea of weight gain that has something to do around the emotional restriction if i can say that around a regular diet is there anything to that in your perspective
1: well i think anything that we attach a significant amount of emotion to um you know, in the sense of meaning and impact. And, and, and the impact could be uh, the experience of the restriction um, or the amount we're actually attracted to something we really don't want to be eating. You know, and there's that pull. I think everybody has that pull. It's kind of like the Jekyll and Hyde of, you know, good and bad decision-making. But I think fundamentally the underlying stress of that kind of yo-yo uh, is going to impact your health in a big way. And mm-hmm. it's interesting, for some people, stress makes people lose weight other people's stress makes you gain weight and actually the older you get the more extreme that tendency becomes
0: so i can look forward to gaining a few pounds if i stress myself out well unless you're
1: one of the people who gets thinner with stress <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah so uh, for the sake of our listener uh, if, if we ever put pictures up on the internet right. you'll see that i'm one of those guys that tends to lose weight when i get stressed yeah, yeah. we'll just leave it at that mm. yeah <laughs> okay so uh, emotional well-being um and as well as uh, dieting yo-yos from good to bad, that sort of thing. Um, looking over our notes here, you talk about calorie counting. Um, and I guess that's something that regular diets um, focus on. You know, how many calories are in this thing? I can only have this this much uh, butter on this little teeny piece of bread because it only has less than 100 calories. Sometimes I see at the checkout lines, they'll have um, uh, Kit Kat bars, um, you know, instead of having a four-finger bar, it's only two fingers because it's the Kit Kat light bar, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's something, some kind of an idea around calories being bad. Well,
1: I mean, if your primary focus is on trying to reduce the amount of adipose tissue or what we call fat, um, the common sense, maybe too common sense, um, is that less calories means less fat. And on a certain level, on a certain level, that's true. It's just not the biggest truth out there. And unfortunately, we you know it's, we're, we're a culture who loves the simplest answer, you know, something that could be a bumper sticker. I mean, if it's, you know, three words or less, people are going to just say, oh, that's great. And I'm not saying we're idiots. I'm just saying we're so overwhelmed with information and stimulation that, you know, it's, it's a reprieve to have something that you could literally put on a bumper sticker. When it comes to the, you know, our present statistics around obesity, you know, which were creeping up, around 60% of people are clinically overweight. Almost half of people are clinically obese, you know, and when you hit clinically obese, your your medical outcomes are looking pretty bad. Um, so given that that statistic is, is around, um, especially in the, you know, bigger cities with, you know, uh, uh, a lot of low-income people and stuff because they don't have the best food. And that ends up you know causing more obesity too uh, i think it's a really good thing that we have that in our consciousness you know this is not a good idea running with a bumper sticker around a health crisis may not be a great idea <laughs> which is why want i have this kind of conversation is to really give people a, a sense of uh, how the calorie thing works and how it doesn't work as long as we have a sense of how it can be applied to, to you then you know that's good medicine
0: so is that something you can describe in a podcast is that something you can
1: say? well there's a few examples that I think can pry apart the simplicity of calories bad or okay. extra calories bad. first one uh, is simply that if ten people sat down and had exactly the same food out of exactly the same package you would have ten different amounts of actual caloric um, money in the bank for each person. So say the the meal is meant to be an 800-calorie meal. It's got perfect proportions of fats to proteins to carbohydrates to fibers and stuff. Uh, each of the people at that table is going to bring in, could be 600 calories, it could be 750. And crazy as this is going to sound, it could be a thousand.
0: Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the pause. <laughs> so let me just get this idea straight. Uh, 10 people come up to a plate that's Nutritionally balanced. Made by NASA. Okay <laughs> made by astronauts or science, or whatever it is It's got 800 calories on the plate. Yeah. Some people would get less from it that I could understand mm-hmm. as being somebody who's For lack of a better word underweight. I know that I can only digest certain things and I've only ever had that in my life yeah. um, I don't get the same nutrition out of a meal to say somebody else does I, I get that but how would somebody get more out of
1: that? Yeah, this this is where I think it's fun so there's a whole bunch of different strains of bacteria um and to keep it simple there's going to be the b bacterias which are good for people and then there's the f bacterias which are going to make you fatter and again we'll do a podcast on bacteria something because it's it's a lot of information and the the words get kind of long. anyway so if you have a lot of f bacteria in your colon it's going to digest the carbohydrate and especially the fiber into something called butric acid which is a fat So you're taking something that has 4 calories per gram as a carbohydrate and now it has 9 calories per gram made by a bug in your tummy, Hmm. right? And then you're going to absorb that butric acid and burn it off as if you just had, you know, 3 extra tablespoons of fat.
0: You talked about this NASA-designed plate of perfectly balanced food. Yeah. So how does that work if you're eating stuff that's junk food? Like, would you have an 800-calorie, like if you had a Big Mac and fries, would somebody digest that and get Twice the bad out of it? I'm just trying to see if that equates to good or bad food.
1: Um, well, it depends on the bacteria. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. And it also depends on what's called triglyceride disposition or the tendency your body has because of your lifestyle to turn extra calories into triglycerides, which turn into fats. right? And it's kind of like a, a traffic situation where there's just a tendency of a lot of people to cross a certain street and go into a certain building. So anytime you have people walking into the town, they're like, well, I guess I should just get on that street and go to that building because everybody else is, and that's where the cool kids are going. So, you know, the body builds up uh, habitual pathways to dispose of extra calories. So, you know, you you have a regular-sized meal, say, four or five days in a row, Um, that disposition is going to be normal because you you typically only have the calories you need to just get through your day, assuming you're absorbing all all the calories. And then, you know, it's Sunday night and you're having your typical Sunday, you know, roast beast feast or whatever you happen to do with your family on Sundays, and you have all these extra calories, right? So then your body says, oh, I guess it's time to turn on that pathway, and, you know, by probably Tuesday afternoon that pathway is normalized because, you know, you're back to eating normally and you're busy working and stuff. Uh, people who decide to feast, you know, more often than not, their pathways are established, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, which we'll come back to, to basically dispose of any extra energy as fat, because, you know, your physiology assumes that your brain is in command and knows why it's doing what it's doing. So if you're extra eating that all that extra food, you're going to naturally dispose of it um, uh, as adipose tissue or as fat. Um, I mean, one of the things I just want to jump in to make sure I don't forget is... Besides the weird things that can happen with bacteria in your gut, your pancreas may or may not be excited by your food to actually digest your food. And, okay, so before you go too far with that, Mm -hmm. what's my pancreas? Okay, so your pancreas (laughs) is this lovely little gland right next to your stomach uh, that produces uh, primarily digestive enzymes and insulin. There's a few other things that it's responsible for. And those enzymes basically come out of a duct right below your stomach, and as soon as your food comes out of your stomach, Uh, well, the acid and stuff in it, Uh, your pancreatic enzymes get in there and turn it around to go from an acidic to a more base pH, and then those enzymes take your food apart basically from larger uh, proteins to amino acids and and larger carbohydrates to similar carbohydrates. So anyway, a
0: little quick howdy to your pancreas. Good job. Okay, so uh, back to the point, um, you're talking about how the pancreas affects whatever it is you're digesting.
1: Yeah, so the kind of humorous way to look at it would be if I was to eat a piece of broccoli by itself, poor, lonely little piece of broccoli, it's in a it get you up and up in my stomach, and as it touches the wall of your stomach, and there's a bunch of communicating hormones that kind of tell your body how um, impressed it is with what you're eating, uh, your, st- your stomach will signal your pancreas with what I like to call the blue foam, Um, and say, well, there's something here, it's got a lot of fiber, a little bit of carbohydrate, and a few vitamins, and, you know, maybe some other good stuff, but, you know, it's not really, like, you know, that really great stuff we really want all the time. And the pancreas says, okay, I'll kick out a little bit of enzymes, and we'll see what happens. If you were to take the same piece of broccoli, well, probably another one, considering what just happened to that one, and dip it in some butter or garlic aioli or something you like, something with a lot of fat in it, After you chew it up and swallow it, as soon as those fat molecules rest up against the lining of your stomach, your stomach picks up the red phone, says, oh my god, pancreas, there's some really amazing food in here, and then there's fat, and and like fat and fat-soluble vitamins, and vitamins and stuff, oh my god. So your pancreas will literally secrete 10 times the volume, the physical, actually, amount of uh, enzymes to tear through all of the broccoli to get to the fat. Okay,
0: so all things being equal, if uh, ten people came up to the plate and they had this food, mm-hmm. some people may be more uh, some people get may get more calories out of the, uh, a plate of food than another mm-hmm. um, there's whatever it is your pancreas pancreas is doing to things yep. um, is there any other factors like uh, genetics or that sort of thing that sort of uh, dictate how it is I actually can digest or get through a plate of food uh, Unfortunately,
1: every particular thing in your body, in the sense of every hormone, neurotransmitter, organ, system, and everything, is gonna in some way impact your ability to digest and use the calories in your food. I mean, if your stomach acid is weak because of its own problems, uh, that's a factor. If your stomach acid is weak because of thyroid issues, that's a factor. then there's what you do as a metabolic use of calories because of stress, you know, which can go into very different directions. There's lots and lots of different things. the The big takeaway fact, though, uh, when you want to do calorie counting as your primary uh, tactic around managing your weight, um, you're gonna, you know, it's what we call an end of one experiment. You, you know, you're gonna have to figure out your caloric needs, and they may be less or more than you know some dietary dictocrat, as we like to call them, has put in their particular book.
0: Hmm. Okay. So we've been talking about uh, calories and what makes them work, uh, that sort of thing. Um, Is there any way where they actually do make sense?
1: Well, there's a tendency with people who are doing the calorie counting thing to actually cause themselves some damage, right? Um, And you have to be, and this is a weird thing to say, but there are people who are overweight who are suffering from malnourishment or they're technically starving in a specific way. There are people who are underweight, who are actually having metabolic problems that would mirror somebody who's clinically obese, right? So if you're at either sort of extreme of that, uh, there's a different kind of calorie math or accounting that's really important. So I call it calorie accounting because I want everyone listening to this to imagine that you are now an accountant. And you work for the body and your job is to make sure that everyone gets paid what they need if you can. Okay. Okay so let's say you've decided to do the 1500 calorie a day diet weight loss plan so as an accountant now you have 1500 bucks a day to pay all your people okay so every pound of muscle in your body let's say uh needs about 50 calories per hour every pound of fat in your body needs about five calories per hour to stay alive okay so you got you know Maybe, you know, 40 pounds, 50 pounds of muscle. Got to pay those guys off. Well, oh, I think we're broke. <laughs> and then we got to pay off the cheaper fat guys. So, I mean, that's easier to keep them happy because they're running at a 10% of the cost. So your body at some point will actually burn off muscle for the the uh, lack of calories more efficiently or more uh by necessity because of the accounting of survival then it will burn off the fat which is you know really the danger of the term weight loss because if you just look at calories and you try and exercise as much as you can which is actually harder to figure out exactly what you're burning but you just go to the scale every day you know and check out what your weight is and you're getting really strange successes all of a sudden You know, I've been overweight for 15 years and I'm finally doing my 1500 calories a day and I'm on my treadmill and every week I'm losing three or four pounds
0: of weight. But that weight may not necessarily be healthy weight to be losing. You're
1: probably burning protein or muscle faster than you're burning fat because muscle costs so much more to keep alive, Hmm. right? So this is the danger of weight loss because what we really want to do if you're obese is to burn fat or to shrink the gland of the adipose tissue. Because as weird as it is, your fat is a functioning gland like your spleen or your pancreas or your thymus gland. It's communicating with the rest of your body and assumes that it exists because you needed a big
0: gland. Okay. (laughs) So, uh, my math skills aren't all that great. (laughs) But what you're saying about um, calorie accountability uh, just makes me think that any diet wouldn't work. Uh, so that's that's the title of the episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why diets don't work. <laughs> the, the room literally just got forty watts brighter. <laughs> yeah. Ding, yeah. the light is on. Um, okay, so dieting doesn't work uh, with calorie counting. Uh, what are what's another factor?
1: So this is a uh, time to get our vocabulary muscle out. <clears throat>
0: So I'm already an accountant, now I gotta learn how to spell great. Late <laughs> on
1: me. Oh, you just gotta pronounce the word. Try to say this angiogenesis. Angiogenesis. Hope the audience is having fun. Try and say anti-angiogenesis.
0: <laughs> Uncle? Angiogenesis.
1: <laughs> so angiogenesis is the physiological process that happens when you're gonna grow new tissue. Now, if you're growing more of an adipose gland or fat. Uh, every, I think it's every kilogram of fat needs 800 kilometers of vascular tissue. Okay. So just to throw it out there, if you took your vascular tissue, all of your blood vessels and capillaries and stretched them out end to end, they would go around the equator of the earth eight times. Wow. I just love the weird facts. <laughs> it's just fun to throw those down once in a while, just in case
0: you're at a party going, well, you know, uh, and so did you know that? <laughs> is that, does that matter how much you weigh? Uh, that's just sort of an average so, for some people, they could be tripping around the planet a few more times.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you know, it's like take your average sumo wrestler or something, they're probably getting a couple more laps around the planet <laughs> with their vascular tissue. And then, without making fun of anyone, it's just an important thing to have the, the mental imagery, that um, you have to take the, the uh, nutrients and the enzymes and uh, growth factors and stuff, which is quite a burden on your liver and kidneys, to grow every kilometer of vascular tissue. Now, more importantly, it's almost harder for your body to reabsorb that tissue than it is to build it. So this is what causes a lot of uh, fat loss plateaus and, you know, you say you're 30 pounds overweight, you get down to that last stubborn 12 to 10 and you're doing everything right in the sense of what you've, you know, succeeded with so far, but nothing's changing.
0: So let's see if I can understand this, I'm going to say this in plain English, if I'm 150 pounds, yep. And I want to lose 30 pounds. Uh, I've lost 25 pounds. The last five pounds that I want to lose are plugged in to my body with all the blood vessels and that kind of stuff, and I can't lose that because my body's still connected to it in some way.
1: Well, the technical thing is you have to basically debride or reabsorb the vascular tissue. Okay, and that's a very expensive thing to do for your liver and kidneys. So at a certain point, they run out of the ability to uh, call it demanufacture the blood vessels they recently manufactured. So you can't lose the weight that's supported by the vascular tissue if the vascular tissue can't shrink. So, quick imagery. Um, imagine in your left hand you have a mouse. Okay. And it's really, really chubby because we've genetically designed the mouse to gain weight if you feed it mouse kibble. And in your right hand, if you so choose, you've got a mouse and it's covered in tumors because we've genetically designed mice to grow tumors on mouse kibble because that's one of the ways we learn, sorry, I'm, you know, you have know, genetically did uh, determine uh, chubby mouse, genetically determined cancer mouse. Now, if you put both of these mice on an angiogenic diet or something that really makes uh the proliferation of blood vessels possible, they're going to be the biggest, chubbiest, and uh, cancer-covered tumor mouse ever. Sorry, I'm almost getting to the happy part. <laughs> I know this is gross. But if you put both these mice on an anti-angiogenic diet, which supports the liver and kidneys' ability to reabsorb the blood vessels, right, to demanufacture them, um, you now have a normal-sized north in both hands. Hmm. Right? Because these mice, given the right food, will reabsorb and have a really healthy metabolism with respect to obesity or the growth of tumors. Weird as it is, it's a fact.
0: So is that actually a possibility? I'm not a mouse, and I'm overweight, and I want to lose weight. Is this a good thing? Absolutely. Okay. So what does that look like? I mean, other than having a big, long, expensive word attached to it, what does an anti-angiogenic diet look like?
1: Um, About 70% of the volume of each of your meals would be made of plants. Uh, 80% of the plants should be coming from above the ground, 20% from below the ground. The more enriching the colors are of your roots, the better. Um, About, you know, 20% of the volume of that plate should be some kind of protein. Um, you mean animal protein or fish? Yeah fish would be ideal. Um, then there's you know some chicken. It's always good to keep the ratio of chicken and fish about one to one. Um, it's important to not over damage the oils you cook with by overcooking them so it's kind of more like a sauce uh, marinade simmering kind of you know soup stews, stir fries, casseroles, stuff like that. Barbecue's not on the list? Unfortunately no barbecue's not on the list and if you want to have more interesting stuff about that. Go back to the three healthiest ways of eating on Earth, which I think is podcast number three. Yep. Uh, anyway, so uh, then you have some good fats. So a, dri- a dip, a dressing, a sauce. You know, uh, I love bringing up the image of it going to a gourmet restaurant and being given a steak with a lump of butter on top of it melting, which is actually the healthiest way to
0: eat a giant steak, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. No, I've actually uh, prepared uh, steak that way on your recommendation a couple of times, Uh, just a a simmer or braising, that sort of thing, like a really low and slow um, cooking method and finishing it off with butter Mm. or cooking it with a little bit of butter, which is, you know, go big or go home, half a pound of butter, well, maybe not that much, but still, it was a lot of butter in the pan and it was actually delicious.
1: Yeah, and it's actually easier for your liver and kidneys to digest that much protein with that much extra fat. Mm hmm
0: so, anyway, so an
1: anti-angiogenic diet would be really, really high in plants. You know, some seasonal local fruit, preferably berries, but mostly lots of vegetables, reasonable amount of protein, and uh, a good sauce or dip or dressing so that you have some good fats in there all the time.
0: That sounds like the diet that you refer to in the Three Health Days Diets, which is like the, the real paleo diet.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so basically the what we call the paleo diet minus the barbecue grill marks. Yeah. So if, if you're out there and you're trying to really attend to the whole what is a healthy diet in the sense of health, but also in the sense of uh, reducing fat, uh, go online and look up you know paleo diet recipes. Just don't grill everything.
0: Okay. Um, when I think of uh, dieting, Um, and how it is that I'm supposed to eat, and that sort of thing. I've looked at information over the years. Diet for your blood type, um, that sort of thing. Um, And there's different bits of information that I've learned over the years. But what is it that you can say about, you know, where it is that I came from, and, I don't know, evolution around how my physiology shows up versus somebody else's around what it is I'm supposed to, or not supposed to be eating?
1: Well, I mean, I think with respect to ancestral eating, uh, which I'm obviously a big proponent of, I wrote a book about it. Um, if you're concerned about your health, but nothing serious is going on, then I would go back a few generations to where your family was in some ways still homesteading. Because okay? if, if you're eating that way, you're getting nutrient-dense food, and although you may be eating some things that could be potential irritants to some people, if you're doing okay, well, you're doing okay, if your health isn't doing that well, then I would go farther back you know, um, because we all have this history. Some people were homesteading, and it was new 300 years ago. I have ancestors who have that, you know, story, uh, who are hunter-gatherers before they were homesteading even, you know, know, just a few generations ago. Other people, uh, especially people from Europe, homesteading was, you know, started about 8,000 years ago, and, you know, city-states got, you know, Big enough that we we could shop basically. So homesteading became kind of a secondary thing. But uh, then you go back, you know, another ten thousand years, and they're hunter gatherers forever. So I would say, you know, if you want to be particularly picky, in the sense of I want to do exactly what's right for my genes, uh, learn about your ancestry, and just go back however far back you need to go to get to that homesteader kind of that. However, you know, if we go back far enough, in the sense of ice ages and stuff, we all have exactly the same metabolism. Hmm. So there's sort of three, well, I call the four F's of, of uh, uh, human metabolic evolution. Uh, one is uh, foraging, right? So most of our uh, evolutionary history, we're really good at just walking around picking up food. You know, trapping food, uh, fishing for food, hunting for food. Um, you know, but mostly it was just lying around. (laughs) Uh, so low low hanging fruit, fruit, yeah. So as long as we could just keep moving around and, and, and consuming enough nutrients and calories to keep moving around, we're foraging and that makes us happy because your metabolism is high because you're technically exercising, you know, hours every day and you're eating really, really healthy seasonal nutrient dense food. So hard to mess that up. Um, sometimes you'd be hitting a famine. Right, so another F, um, you know, you're crawling around because you're starving. You're pushing rocks over slowly with levered sticks or something to eat the bugs underneath of them because now it's all about efficiency. Right, you know, and, and we have an amazing metabolic capacity to be efficient. And we'll probably get into that maybe in the next podcast. The next F is feasting. So, you know, we're lucky it's fall, we've learned enough about, you know, planting seeds in our poop and stuff like that to have uh, migratory kind of, you know, early gardens and stuff like that. So we're all basically just chowing down on, every, on everything. Our metabolism learns to slow down, as I mentioned before, develop the pathways that are very efficient at storing energy as fat. Because eventually the famine thing is going to come back and, you know, seasons are cyclic and stuff like that. Uh, In fact, where I grew up in uh, northern Canada, um, we actually called spring the hungry time. Because, you know, you're living out in a root cellar and there's 10 feet of snow outside and you're like, I wish I had a helicopter in stores, (laughs) or something. Anyway, so that's another F is, you know, our metabolism is designed to do that. And, um... You know, when we're all eating all day every day in the sense of feasting, um, you actually kind of consciously have to force yourself to keep feeding because uh, there's a lot of background hormones that are saying, dude, you know, you're full. Yeah, I don't know. hormones say, dude, it's really interesting. No, medical fact there. <laughs> anyway, the fourth F is, I don't want to say on the podcast, but we'll just call it frazzled. And that's when you're in a famine state, right? In the sense that you're not getting enough calories, but for some reason you've decided to become an Olympic athlete in the sense of, okay, I'm going to restrict calories and I'm going to uh, train hard, which is what we call the, the modern diet trends. Right, So, foraging is obviously the healthiest thing to do. Stay active, eat real nutrient dense, seasonal local foods, and you're going to live for as long as your genes are going to let you. Famines are actually a good idea every once in a while for your insulin metabolism, uh, for your brain, um, for a whole bunch of other stuff, which you would call like intermittent fasting. You know, you know, once a month, take a couple of days off and just have broth or something. Because that kind of caloric restriction just triggers really good metabolic uh, res- resiliency and health. It kind of turns on uh, the memory of that being a part of your metabolism. So you drift back and forth between famine and fasting instead of, uh, or sorry, famine and foraging instead of um, foraging and feasting. Because if if you're stuck always forging towards feasting, eventually, inevitably, your body's going to do what you're telling it to do, which is store energy for the mythical famines that never seem to happen.
0: The idea of feasting is how we eat every day. Then, we are always surrounded by food. We've got a fridge full of food all year round. We've got a freezer full of food all year round. And Those
1: little crunchy, salty things we have in boxes above the stove that are just waiting for us all of the time eat me I'm crunchy yeah
0: (laughs) a box of uh, frosted flakes (laughs) or that sort of thing and so that's not necessarily a healthy state to be in
1: yeah and then this brings us to kind of the wrap up factoid um, which I think honestly deserves its own entire podcast for the geek out folks who are going to be you know the fusion health tribe who want to know everything about everything because it's pretty fascinating but the brush strokes about this is, uh, it's called leptin resistance. Okay, so um, most people are familiar around uh, hormones like insulin when it comes to uh, overuse of sugar, carbohydrates, and what drives uh, weight gain or fat gain. But below insulin is uh, our two hormones. One's called ghrelin, one's called insulin. Ghrelin, which I think is a great name because it kind of sounds like the sounds your stomach makes when it's hungry, you know, gurgle, gurgle so when your body is empty of food the ghrelin goes up which increases your appetite and tells you go find food you know it's it's like i don't know there's a joke in there about how we all need to be told what to do by our hormones all the time um and once you've eaten enough food that your body's triggered itself to say oh i have more than enough calories and food and nutrients i think what i'll do is start storing energy as fat as soon as that process begins your leptin levels go up which means unless you feel like you have to force feed yourself for some reason, there's enough food. And then your natural appetite, it's a trigger of satiation, and you're like, well, you know, I'm I'm a foraging, you know, post-primate human. I can eat anytime, anywhere I want, so I'll stop eating now. But, you know with the three meals and the most of it's actually the childhood conditioning that you can't get up away from the table or have dessert until you finish what's on your plate i mean that's the source of most psychotherapists you know <laughs> second home is like so your family was really really edgy around eating everything yeah. You
0: know,
1: because different generations around food but anyway so we, we sit there with this plate of food going oh my god you know and you know i won't be able to eat for three or four more hours or you know, or whatever we were. we're like, oh my god, I gotta eat all that food. So we have the, the leptin hormone come into our system and say, okay, you've had enough. Like, I think you'd stop. And you're like, I, I don't care. <laughs> for whatever reason, I really want to finish that. And I, I know if I eat that mountain of mashed potatoes, I'm gonna be as high as a drunken, you know, elephant in the jungle for two hours just because of how uh, high carbohydrate meals make you feel kind of, you know, happy and hazy and, you know. I don't know quick uh, myth buster when people go to have thanksgiving dinner and they you know gorge on turkey and stuffing and mashed potatoes and pie and they think oh i'm so sleepy because the turkey has tryptophan in it," it's like no actually tryptophan is really really hard to absorb but all of the you know stuffing and potatoes and pie that's going to knock you out yeah that's just a food coma that's not tryptophan. a food coma <laughs> good, good term get a, get a shirt with that anyway so what happens to people who um, are chronically overweight and overfeeding is your fat gland secretes leptin. And it's telling you, we've got more than enough food. right? Your appetite signaling, because you're probably still overeating more than you need, <clears throat> is also going to keep the leptin levels high. So what happens to the receptors for leptin in, in your brain, which is where all this stuff actually really matters, they kind of, you could say, plug their ears and go, la, 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 I can't hear you. And this is what we call receptor site resistance. In this case it's insulin resistance you can have, uh, or in this case it's leptin resistance, but you can also have insulin resistance, cortisol resistance, all kinds of other things. So the long and short of it is, if um, you're you're overweight and you have tended to overeat, um, when the leptin resistance happens the hormone of satiation no longer uh, has a voice.
0: So you're walking around all of the time feeling like you're starving which means people tend to, it's just a self-reporting cycle then.
1: Well, I think it's one, you know, for any of the people listening to this that are clinically overweight, uh, the kind of willingness, willpower perhaps, but willingness that it takes to basically uh, sit still when you're writhing on the inside with messengers from a million years ago that say you're going to die if you don't eat something. You know, you may be looking down at yourself going, obviously I have more than enough energy stored as fat to like survive the rest of the day. But as far as the back of your brain is concerned, you know, you're going to, you'll, you'll, you'll chew on almost anything to deal with that instinctual. It's a, it's a painful experience. For anyone listening who knows people who are overweight and you feel a sense of judgment about them or you're embarrassed for them in some way or whatever it is that you're doing because you think that, you know, they've messed this up somehow recognize that they're basically seething and writhing on the inside because of a hormonal imbalance that is correctable, but the first three months are basically, you know, white knuckle affirmations to yourself, which is, I've had enough food, this hormone is lying. Telling their
0: lizard brain to shut up.
1: I mean, it's hard. I mean, that's, that's often when I get into those, what are called, voice dialoguing practices with people where you learn to actually have a conversation with these deeper systems that are, you know, like a lighter below your brain going
0: fire. Wow. You know? <laughs> well, um, in what the earlier podcast, uh, you talked about how uh, the body doesn't always know when it's thirsty.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, so the same sort of thing here, the body doesn't always know when it's hungry. Or full. Or full. Wow. So um, I guess the upshot of all this is, I'm going to see if I can try to encapsulate this, you tell me if I'm right, um, eating a uh, cleaner and greener yeah. diet allows the body to better navigate all the different messages. It's feeding it back to itself around food. So, um, a diet of calorie restriction isn't necessarily the best way to lose weight or to maintain some kind of healthy body weight. It's just a matter of eating a healthier diet and things will just fall into place naturally.
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think the the real potent takeaway from all this is calorie restriction is effectively going to come out with the wrong outcome because eventually you're going to end up triggering your instincts to just replace the, the, the weight that you uh, got rid of too fast and in, in, in a relatively hostile way. If you eat a plant-based, you know, reasonable amount of protein, reasonable amount of fat diet all day, every day in the sense of foraging, you know, what's natural, easy to get uh, plants don't run away, so there's going to be a lot of plants. Um, over time, while being physically active in the sense of a foraging metabolism, you will eventually hit your genetic potential for normalizing weight. But it's it's really important to do it gradually because, you know, the bull in the china shop method almost always ends up uh, with the opposite results you're looking for in the long term. Recognizing that the two big blocks for people are the angiogenic a plateau, which means if you can't reabsorb the blood vessels, you can't reabsorb the adipose tissue that are being supported. Uh, which goes back to the, uh, the same diet. Um, and then there's the, the very challenging uh, metabolic state we call leptin resistance. So if that's in fact something that's buying the show, um, get some friends, get a therapist, get, you know, uh, whatever support you need. And just recognize the first three months is just repairing the, the leptin resistance process itself. And then it may take months and months after that for you to get to the, you know, the weight or the, the fat loss goal you're actually looking for.
0: A lot of uh, big ideas today. Yeah,
1: but a simple, simple, simple thing. Yeah. Stop looking at the calories of your food. Enjoy what you eat. Stick to the wall of the grocery store so you don't have to buy packages because no packages No little nutritional fact chart
0: (laughs) there's no nutrition facts on the side of a zucchini (laughs) not yet (laughs) absolutely Uh, we've been speaking today with Dr. Michael Smith Um, why dieting never works Uh, fascinating subject Uh, this has been episode 6 of Fusion Health Radio Uh, what's coming up in the next podcast Michael Uh,
1: number 7 is going to be your muscles are amazing Uh, muscles talking about uh, fitness well just All the different things muscles actually are, how they work, um, how to maximize their potential if that's your goal, how to make sure you're not um, missing a really good opportunity if you're not into being fit, um, and a few other really tricky things for people who want to be superheroes.
0: Superheroes, cool. (laughs) Okay, Uh, that wraps up uh, episode six of Fusion Health Radio. I'm Anthony Sanna. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. You can connect with uh, Michael via comments on the podcast. And uh, you can find us on Facebook as well. Uh, Look for Fusion Health Radio there. We'll see you in the next podcast.
1: Uh, Please leave questions so we can have lots of fun answering them. And cook well, eat well and be well. Have a great day. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.